You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We've got loads to get through on today's end of season show, including mulling over all of our moments of the season. I'm Yaz Rana and today I'm joined by the Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine editor, Joe Harmon, the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, and the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner. Loads to get through today. Let's start with Moeen Ali's retirement from the test game. I spoke to Mark Butcher earlier about Moeen calling it a day and how his test career should be remembered. Moe's test career was like a, a highlights reel, wasn't it? Um, you know, when you think of Moe and Ali, you think of, you think of best shot of the day, brilliant, you know, some brilliant delivery that the pitches two foot outside off stump, bowls totally through the gate. You think of that being followed up with the odd hip high full toss or having a, a, a huge Moe at one and skying it straight up in the air at an inopportune moment. There was no, there was no in between. There was no boring dullness um, with Mo and Ali, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, people loved watching him play so much. Um, there was a sort of a freedom in the way that he expressed himself on the field um, that probably belied um, you know, a, a sort of a lot more in the way of seriousness, um, you know, underneath the surface. But, um, you know, 195 wickets for somebody who came in as some, uh, who was a fill-in off-spin bowler, really, in Test Match Cricket is extraordinary. Um, and the fact that he, he, he took them at 37 apiece kind of backs up the bit that I said before, you know, about the fact that he's, he was either absolutely sensational and irresistibly good or was, was pretty damn ordinary. Um, and I'll tell you what, I, I, would love, I wouldn't have minded being remembered like that either. Um, you know, just a, a compelling cricket player who, you know, perhaps if he hadn't have been quite such a such a sort of easygoing, mild mannered sort of fella, he might not have it might have not been so easy for, for him to have been shunted around and used in so many different roles as, as a batter. But no, I think I think he can be very proud of, of what he achieved as a as a test match player. 
Um, and there will there'll always be lots of ifs and buts, you know, if he'd been given more of an opportunity up the order. If, um, you know, if England had perhaps not had to rely on him at, at times as a sort of, as a, as, a, as a holding spin bowler, which he never really managed to, to nail down in terms of a role, um, then, then his career might have been better. But in the end, I think he can look back on it and say he did pretty bloody well. Mm. Um, as you said, he, he did fulfil a lot of roles for England over the years. Um, do, do you think he should have got more opportunities batting in the top six? That was what he got in the team for in the first place. Uh, he batted everywhere from one to nine, which he's one of only two yeah. players in the history of the game to do that. And he kind of intimated that he was frustrated a little bit that he didn't get as many opportunities as he could have done. If you kind of think back to that era of the, the, the Bayless era, you had loads of guys who wanted to bat six or, base, or, or six was their best position. So do you think in hindsight he got around about the fair number of opportunities in the end? Well... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's an impossible one to answer because, they, as you rightly say, at, at that time, England had a lineup where you could say they had four number sevens in the team, of which Mo was one. Um, I mean, you know, it was it was a it was a nonsense that he ended up batting at three or opening the batting at times. I mean, that 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 should never have happened. And yeah, his 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 sort of his natural home, I think, in a Test match lineup would have been anywhere between five and seven. Hmm. Um, and then he, you know, and then he can go out and play in the in the in the free manner. Well, I mean that, that depending on how many runs the people above you have made, in the free manner that that, that suits him the best. Um, look, I don't know. I, I always find it difficult because because in the end, the thing that kept Mo in the side was his bowling. Mm. So the the issue for Mo in always was that as a bowler, he was never he was never able to be as consistent as a, as a real frontline spinner might have been. So, mm. you know, he could never bowl as consistently as Graham Swan. He could bowl better deliveries than Graham Swan. He could bowl, you know, similar wicket-taking stuff to Graham Swan, but he could, he could never sort of be part of a four-man attack, say with three quicks and, and, an off, and one spinner, because he was never able to bowl consistently tight enough to do that. Um, and so in the end, he, so he, his, his fortunes as a bowler almost dictated what happened to him as a, as a batsman. Mm. Um, and you would argue that if he, if he hadn't have been an effective wicket-taking off-spin bowler, he might not have got a chance to play on the side at all. So, um, you know, it, it's one of those things where there are all kinds of, all kinds of things in the pot that went, to how, that went towards how mowing um, and his test career played out. Um, and in the end, look, I, I have no absolutely, you know, some people are sort of saying, oh, he's, he's tracked the towel in too early. I, I don't have any, any feelings about that one way or the other. I think he's, he's very happy um, in the choices that, he, that he's making. Uh, I think he's very happy, in a very happy place as a cricket player and, and as a role model and all the other roles that he fulfills that are, that are way beyond stuff that happens on the field. Um, and that he's, you know, he's looked back at that career and gone, you know what, I've, I've done, I've done, very, very well indeed. And I'll be remembered as one of, you know, one of England's best all-rounders. Um, I'm going to reel off a few stats. 64 tests, 500s, 195 test wickets. Six player of the match awards, the same number as Flintoff from 15 fewer tests. In all but two of his years, 2015 and 2021, in the test side, he either averaged above 45 with a bat or below 32 with a ball. Under Joe Root's captaincy, he took 97 wickets at 31. Under Alistair Cook's captaincy, he averaged more than 35 with the bat. Uh, Joe, how are you going to remember Moeen's test career? Fondly, for the, for, the, for the main part, he's definitely, it's interesting you pick out those numbers because he's always been one of those players, particularly in test cricket, where you can 
pick the numbers that suit you. There's also some less flattering numbers you could pick out, particularly related to his batting um, over the last few years. But um, he gave a really honest, typically honest interview um, to Quick Info announcing his retirement. Yeah, it left me feeling a bit sad. There, There is a sense that I think his his view was that he's probably overperformed with the ball and underperformed with the bat. And I think it's kind of hard to argue with that given some of the innings he played early in his test career that there could have been so much more. And you can argue the toss whether that's England have messed him around. I think that's definitely contributed to it. Um, but he's got to take some responsibility for that himself, I think. But it's his, it's his bowling that's really, I think history will, will judge him well on that in a way that people have been quick to to leap on a bad test. Whenever Moen has a bad test with the ball, it, it shows that he's not good enough, which is just nonsense when you look at the record that he's he's put together. Um, and what we regarded him as when he first came into that side, when it was that New England team and he arrived with, I remember we did a, a cover for our old magazine, All That Cricket, back in the day. It was him, Gary Balance and Sam Robson were the three coming men of, of English cricket at that point. And look, you look at those three careers that those guys have had, and and Moen was Moen was a great pick. The others had their moments, but we didn't pick him out as a as a test all rounder. We picked him out as a as the most exciting batsman in the country at that point. He might bowl a few overs. As it is, he's he's got a a, a record which very few can match. Uh, not in England, not just in England, but across the board as a as a test all rounder. So, yeah, I think over. As the years go by, I think we'll look back on his test career perhaps more positively than, than people do now. Mm. Um, Phil, you can kind of manipulate the stats one way or the other to kind of uh, put your own narrative on Maureen's career. But if you're playing for a cricket team and at the end of the season, you're looking back at who are your players of the season, you don't go to play cricket first and, and look who tops the averages. You think about who won you games, who played shots or delivered balls that other players couldn't really do. And on that metric, Moeen features very highly yeah for th- well for three or four years from that time he came in um and was almost a victim of how naturally talented he was with the ball to around 2017 2018 for that four or five years three or four years um he was a dreamboat of a cricketer and uh until he went to australia that fateful winter and and it all fell apart and i don't think he ever really recovered from that i don't think he recovered his self-esteem as a test match cricketer as well and then of course there were off-pitch shenanigans regarding contracts and not really feeling trusted by the management and so on and so on plus of course let's not escape the fact that his t20 um reputation was soaring as well and he was making good money on the side of that but anyway that for those three or four years he was he was a a joy to have in that England side and um, it was discovering itself as well that side at the time if you remember post Peterson post that Ashes 13-14 horror show he emerged alongside Stokes um, and one or two others into the, a, a kind of history repeats itself all the time into an England team that wasn't really sure of itself was trying to forge a new identity and so on and he was absolutely key to that um, the game that always sticks out for me, actually, and I just looked it up just now, um, was the Cardiff game, 2015. Now, England went into that summer as underdogs against Australia, uh, and they went to Cardiff, and they batted first, and Joe Root got dropped second ball, and then strummed 100, obviously. Sorry, shouldn't use that word anymore. Um, and then Moeen came in with the game kind of, you know, on a bit of a knife edge, first innings. And he hit 77 in, I've got it here, 77 in 88 balls, nine, 11 fours and a six. 
and changed the complexion of that game and then picked up five wickets. You remember he picked up Steve Smith as well in that first first innings as well. He picked up five wickets in the game, England won that game and then fast forward to six weeks or so and, and, and Cook is at Trent Bridge in tears saying, I never thought we could win this series. So much of that was down to, to, to the, the triumvirate of Root, Stokes and Moeen. Very, very different characters, very, very different blokes, but joined by a kind of sense of style and a sense of kind of showmanship in their own way. Moeen had that. Um, he was not just immensely watchable, but he had the results as well. He had the, the numbers to back it up. It's interesting that you say maybe in time people will consider more fondly his, his test career. I think they already are. I was actually quite surprised by the, the not the depth of feeling for him, but the the words that people were using, you know, seasoned scribes and gnarled judges saying, great career. Well, it's not a great career. And there is that sense that he left a few out there. But then you, you take that that compromise or you take that, it's, it's overcompensated by the fact that he was so immensely watchable and he did win you games of cricket, which was the original point. Um, it was so frustrating here at the Oval, right, where he played so beautifully. This was, I'm talking last month, for 37, 38. And then Toad went up in the air. And, you know, we all look around and we all say, well, it's Mo, bless him. But, that was that. That's the other side of Moeen Ali. In in a nutshell, that innings, that innings, because he played some shots that I was here. We were all here. Never forget those shots on the up with that high, those high hands, standing tall. Through he plays, he, he hits the ball in peculiar areas for Test match players. He hits it kind of straight, straight extra cover, not kind of to the right hand of extra cover, because he sees it earlier and he has such beautiful natural timing. And then out of nowhere, and the ball wasn't turning, and it was day two, and everyone was feeling good about life, and he just towed one up in the air for no reason at all, because because that's Mo. And if we are looking at his career dispassionately, then there are a lot of those moments as well. It was interesting that he said in his interviews that his, his head wasn't really in it. He couldn't sustain that concentration for five days, and, and it... it it had shown, hadn't it? It had shown for, for, you know, for two or three three years. He'd become more mercurial the older he got rather than less. Uh, he almost knew his way around the Test match game more as a 27-year-old than he did as a 32-year-old. Um, but yeah, what, what, a, what a joy to watch him on his day. Um, and obviously, he stood for so much more than, than, than the mere cricket. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm brown. I remember, <laughs> I think it's broadly fair to say that when I was growing up, uh, if you saw a brown man on the news, it generally wasn't for a very good reason. And I think that uh, Moeen played a really important role in English cricket, having a positive British Asian role model. Um, ben, have you got a favourite Moeen memory of his test career? Yeah, well, I guess. I mean, it's interesting because in a, in a way he was diminished after that 2017-18 Ashes, but that's also when he had his best spell as a test bowler from uh, his recall in Southampton to the first Ashes test next year, wherever it was, when he obviously struggled and was dropped and then that... There was a constant whatever, but between, I think he took more wickets than any other bowler in the world in that 12 months. Uh, and it would be, I guess it, it would either be that Southampton test where he came in with the series on a knife edge and sort of bowled brilliantly through the game. And that was just mowing, ripping it and attacking. And I think it helps almost having a Rashid in the side and that he wasn't the only spinner. Uh, or it would just be like kind of that whole Sri Lanka tour when he bowled like almost as well as any English spinner has 
overseas, I think. He was just... Uh, I, I don't dispute any of that, series. but it was the self-esteem that I think... Yeah, no, especially so as a batsman. He, yeah, he always saw enough. himself yeah. as a batsman yeah. who, who bowled by accident. And he was so naturally good at it. I remember Graham Swan saying he rips it because he was never coached. He, he didn't bowl spin as a, as a young lad. So he wasn't through the pathways and he wasn't overcoached and so on. So there was a rawness to it. But as a batter, that's... He never recovered from that tour, from yeah. being beaten up that winter. Yeah, but that, you're right about the, as, as a bowler that year, he was unstoppable. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. And it's, it's funny to think about when he first came into the side as a bowler. Like he was almost picked uh, to face Lanka because he had a Dusra, uh, if you remember. Uh, and then he, he's bowled a sum total of one, I think, in an England shirt to, <laughs> to Jai Wardner on that first Who day. Who keepers it? And then, no, Joe, and the Jordan passed it back and said, "Well bowled," and, it, and then that was it. That was done. He wasn't going to bowl one again and, and, and risk that. I think. Uh, so yeah, there was, and you, you talk about the matrimony thing. I think we found a stat that I think only two English bowlers have more fourth innings wickets in wins, which is Broad and Anderson. Uh, and you consider how many wickets he's got overall. The fact that he got so many of those clutch moments shows something. And in terms of him being messed around, obviously there's the contract thing, but uh, this, is, this is a piece that Taha wrote for Wisdom.com, just reflecting on Moe's career. The last test of 2016 against India he makes 100, batting a number four. His second 100 of the series, you think that here is a test batsman. First test the next summer, he's uh, back down at number seven to fit everyone else in. And I think if you're, if you're trying to... So Moeen, I think, sums up this generation of England in test cricket and perhaps overall, where you've had a lot of these cricketers, him, Stokes, Butler and Bairstow, who England have wanted to fit in, even though they don't all fit in together, basically, but have like, accommodated everything else kind of around them and, and that goes for accommodating each of them around the other and Moeen often was the one to lose out and move up and down uh, and these were cricketers who often ODI cricket was taking precedence because we're putting so much stock into winning that World Cup and they were all cricketers capable of their moments and obviously still are in, in Stokes as one who's gone on to forge a properly great test career uh, and the others you wouldn't quite say that but they're all so watchable and also as much as you might look at each of them and say they might have d- done more and are all may- maybe now coming to the end of their test careers to some extent uh like they also did like England were a pretty good side in that time I mean you know, there were lots of ups and downs and lots of uh sort of questions and what ifs and stuff but it was also a brilliantly watchable side and a side that has better results than people give them credit for and haven't been hopeless in tests for five years they've been up and down they've had some very memorable results away from home and some big defeats as well but uh Moen and Bairstow and Butler and Stokes are part of that all for, for better and worse, I think. It's the- also, there's been a narrative with Moeen that um, his versatility was hamstrung him, you know, that he, he would get moved around the, the order too much as a consequence of his all-round abilities. But I'm not sure if that really applies. I don't think Moeen Ali was ever a top six test match batsman. I don't think he could play the quicks with enough confidence regularly enough to be a top five, top six test match, gnarled batsman. Um, and when he did bat in four or five, he, you know, it, it kind of showed really, you know, the, the average was, was tottering around that late twenties, early thirties mark, which is not quite what you need from a top five, top six player. But the fact that he had the, all the rest of it enabled him to, if I, I, I think prolong his test match career. Remember he came into the game as a batsman, that's, that was how he saw himself. That's what he was. He could have been a one-day player, whether he bowled or not, I think. Marvellous one-day player. But I don't think there was, a, there was really a top five, top six batter in there consistently enough. In spinning conditions, when you, when you have to play through and so on, for sure. But, but I don't think that it was there 
for him purely as a batsman. Um, so if anything, I think the fact that he could do the rest actually prolonged his, his test match career. He played, what, 60-odd test matches. He says himself, I didn't think he'd play anywhere near that number. Yeah, possibly. I, I, I do wonder if he'd been given... I mean, obviously, this, this just could never look happen. look at the average. But if, uh, <laughs> if, if, if he had been given, uh, like, basically, that his test career just, just at number six uh, as the prime rounder. If basically Ben Soakes didn't exist and Moeen was England's prime rounder rather than having to shift down to seven and eight and up. I think... I think but you're uh, saying all-rounder uh, again. It's yes, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think he could be any higher than six, but I think he could, like, you know, th- there was that in his second test match, that 100 against Sri Lanka. That I think there was... And I think that the obviously the average ended up down at 28, but I, I think... There is a world in which Moeen could have been England's number six and average thirty-five for that period of time, which which which, which would have he been, did under but, but not without, yeah, not without that. No, yeah. sure, sure, but, but as you and but but the, but the issue was is you have those uh, four players, all of whom are wanting to bat five or six, really, and then you you end up shoving one of them up to number three or one of them down to number eight, and then that doesn't work. Yeah, I'm just looking at his numbers now. So his his best position. Number seven, right? Number seven by quite a long way. So three of his five hundreds were from number seven. His record at six was actually. Uh, 344 runs at 21 from a reasonable sample size, which is quite interesting. But um, the, the batting position doesn't reveal it all, does it? Because it was more that Moen played different ways at certain points of his career, let alone where he was batting. There was a feeling at some points when he was at seven that he would play like a proper proper batter and could play as long as he needed to until he ran out of partners. Yeah. Towards the end, it was basically like he was just having a bit of a slog too, too often, really. And I think that comes back to what Phil said about that lack of self-esteem as a as a test match batter, that he yeah he he, he just lost quite a bit of that and, and didn't really back himself to stick around for a long period of time, which was a real shame. And I think also a, a just a, a consequence of not playing any red ball cricket or much red ball cricket outside of test cricket. If you don't, if you're not, if you, it was fine when he comes into the England test side and he's been batting three or four for Worcestershire and got I mean he got well over a thousand runs in the year before he got he got picked. He never really had that that level of red ball batting once he started playing for England. And that's, that's true for many cricketers, but it's, it's a tough gig. And we, we should also point out that he is in some ways slightly a victim of this schedule. I think in that interview with Cricket Info in the Garden, he said that he did look at that Australia tour also feeling like he had some unfinished business in an ideal world. Maybe he would have wanted to go there, see if he could still do it. But he's just saying that that four month stretch, which would be, and you know, it's his choice to go to the IPL uh, and it's fair enough to make that choice, but having that and then to draw a cup and then the ashes would have been too much and, you realise if you if you if you're not willing to go to national, maybe that means that you should be just uh, kind of that that that's it for you in Test cricket. But if 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 the schedule was different, he might have uh, he might might have made a different decision. I think. So I think that's a record for us to go 20 minutes without mentioning the schedule yeah. the show this summer. Um, the county championship is over, and Warwickshire are champions for the first time since 2012 after a genuinely brilliant final round of games, where at various stages four different sides were in with a shout of winning it. Langshire beat Hampshire by one wicket at Liverpool, a crazy low-scoring game. Langshire looked to be cruising it in the fourth innings, needing 19 runs to win with five wickets in hand. But Mason Crane made it a contest out of nowhere, taking five for 41 and affecting a run out with a direct hit, only for Dane Villas to hit the, the winning runs to set off wild celebrations. Uh, my moment of the week, by the way, is Paul Allett celebrating in the Lancashire dressing room. Uh, Lancashire got a victory song and, and they're all like pumping their arms up. But Alec can't move his arms quite in sync with the rest of them. It's highly, highly recommendable. Um, but from that point on, for Lancs to win, they needed Warwickshire to not beat Somerset on the final day. And at the start of day four, it didn't look that likely that Warwickshire would get that win. 
They start the day about 150 runs in front of Somerset, needing to set up a declaration before taking all 10 Somerset wickets on a pretty flat wicket. Um, Rob Yates, the impressive 22-year-old opener, scored a free-flowing 100. Uh, Will Rhodes, the Warwickshire captain, then declared leaving Somerset a target of 273 with 79 overs left in the game and Warwickshire ended up finishing the job um, early on in the third session. Joe, that was a really, really good end to, end to the season, very entertaining. It was fantastic. It, yeah, it was exactly what you'd want from the end of a county championship season, apart from it wasn't on telly for us to watch, which which was a real shame. And now we've got the Bob Willis trophy, which is a bit of a kind of damp squib of a match to finish the season, really. But um, yeah, it's a really, it's a pretty astonishing achievement from Warwickshire, really, in that they didn't win a Red Bull game last summer. They would have got relegated the previous year, but for the fact that only one side went down from Div 1. Um, I interviewed Paul Farbrace literally a few minutes before this podcast and I asked him, did you think you had a realistic chance of winning it? He said, no chance, not at all. The, the aim was to get into Division 1 uh, because he thought being in Division Division 2 or Division 3 wasn't going to be a good place for his young players to develop, but he didn't think they'd go on and win the thing and he didn't think they would until the last couple of weeks. Um, and yeah, I mean, you, you, you look down their side and it doesn't jump out as a championship winning side necessarily I'm mean, the batting unit I'm watching Rob Yates just over your shoulder uh, kind of nearing a ton at, at Lords, and he looks like a, a really good player um, he's not had a stunning season he scored 400 which is excellent but he's also had a lot of low scores yeah but there. big big runs I mean he made that 100 against Essex in the fourth innings at Edgbaston which was basically whichever team won that was going to go through um, you know it was a brilliant 100 and I watched all of that um and as yeah, says 100 last week as well. So And that's the kind of stuff that people notice, you know, important runs rather than averages and so on. Absolutely. I mean, there was an interesting one. They put up a stat yesterday that how, much, how many of his runs have come at Edgebaston as well. So that's, that's another thing. And in the second innings, which is yeah. quite strange. I mean, yeah, you could say it's impre- it depends which way <laughs> you swing it really. But I asked Farbrace about Yates, who spoke glowingly about him. He, he said he could be captaining Warwickshire now. He's that kind of character. Um, he said technically he's good and he's improving, but he said his character that really stands out. Uh, he said he's badgering the England selectors. Well, I don't have any selectors today. I guess he's Selector. badgering Chris Silverwood <laughs> to say he's and has been for a while. So you've got to take a proper look at this guy. And I think I mean he'll certainly go on a Lions tour. There's an outside chance, depending on how big this Ashes tour is, that he could even be on that. I guess that looking at his overall record, that would seem a bit early. But um, yeah, he, he said uh, Farbro said he expects. He said Yates would be captaining Warwickshire in five or six years' time, apart from the fact he thinks he'll be scoring runs for England. So he obviously has very high hopes for him. Um, he picked out Liam Norwell as well. He said he absolutely deserves a, a Lions chance. Uh, I guess Craig Miles would probably be in the mix for that as well. But these, these are players who have been... Norwell and Miles have been around county cricket for a while. They're really, really good county bowlers. But you wouldn't have necessarily said those two guys are going to spearhead a championship-winning attack. Uh, both from Gloucestershire should be mentioned as well. Gloucestershire have done a, a lot in producing those players, and um, yeah, I mean, some might say that Warwickshire wouldn't have won the championship in a different season where you had the kind of usual structure. You know, that's the moot point. Um, but it's certainly impressive. I think they've won four games. I think I'm right to say that in the last session of a match, which obviously shows a side with a lot of spirit, a lot of belief, and they're a young team who will only get better as well. Mm. Um, ben, they've recruited very well out of the side that took the field on the final day, Sibley, Rhodes, Burgess, Bresden, Briggs, Miles and Norwell have all been signed the last few years. How do you feel about a club that recruits well? Because the implication is there that there aren't that many homegrown players in the team. There'll be Knott's fans listening to this uh, saying that 
they've received quite a lot of criticism for for them signing players in recent years. Atherton on Sky last year was very critical of them. But I also think that with the exception of Miles and Norwell, that a lot of those guys weren't getting the game time they were hoping to get at their previous clubs. And that's why they moved on. So yeah, what what do you think about a, a side that's based on good recruitment rather than homegrown players necessarily? Yeah, I think that that's the thing is that like uh, they are... They're, 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 it's, it, well, they probably are paying players pretty well, but it doesn't seem like that's the reason why they're, they're not. They're not just going to you know small clubs who have very good like sort of finished articles and like bring them in basically to sort of construct a like a you know counter cricket's version of the Galacticos or whatever. It's uh, uh like with with Dom Sibley when he left uh, Surrey, he was sort of batting at number five and six and he was playing the county championship, and that was obviously frustrating for him. Was also in and out of the side, but then he got he went to Warwickshire, batting in the top three. And, uh, well, he's well, a top three batsman. Uh, yes, yeah, but and, and that's what he wasn't doing at Surrey, though. Yeah. And, and so he was able to do that at Warwickshire, and then is now playing for England. Danny Briggs wasn't playing Championship cricket at all down at uh, Sussex, and is now getting to do that and is doing that very well. So I think they are sort of it's 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 not just you know they're not just hoovering up uh, talent or stars. They are getting players who they think they can improve and doing that, which there is still a role for that. I think and. Um, I think that's I think, fair. And I think, I think, if, we, I think, fair. I think if we're realistic about what counter cricket is going to be, I think players are going to want to move clubs like for, for any number of reasons. And I think that like if you, if you start criticising clubs just because they are getting players and giving them chances. And, and, if, and if we do go to a system where there are two divisions, players are going to just want to play in the top division because even if England are looking at all counters equally, which it doesn't seem like they are, they, they, they always do, uh, even then, like players want to win counter championships, so you want to go to a side where you have the chance to do that. And I mean, it's just this kind of how, how the how the structure's going to work that that is going to happen. Uh, sure, they might want to produce a couple more players of their but own. They are, but they are not, coming through as well. I think thing, this yeah. is. I think there is a difference in that there was a sense that Knotts had kind of neglected that side of things a little bit, and were just focusing on just picking up the best talent. Whereas you look at Warwickshire, they've got some really good young kids coming through. I mean, Jacob Bethel, who I mentioned on the. I mean, albeit he was taken from Barbados but he has been certainly developed at Warwickshire down Mousley's another one um there's the Brooks brothers Jahal uh, who's played in this game Jahal, doing really well yeah there's Yates as well so there is lots of young players that's not being neglected at Warwickshire by any means this is just the stage they're at and you know rescuing a few careers and and, and getting them a county championship uh, I think is a, is a great thing that should be applauded really uh, just quickly as well on, on uh Fibre spoke about Bresnan and he said because I think they dropped Bresnan for the penultimate game and he said that was a kind of stroke of luck in that it... Oh, no, was it two games out? Anyway, that he, was, he was dropped. And that, he said that was a stroke of luck because him not being there, they lost the game and they realised how important Bresnan was, even though his stats this year aren't particularly good. He said in that young side, they really needed him there um, and then brought him back in. And, and he's, he's, they said he's been just absolutely integral as someone who's won the championship before, knows how to do it, knows his way around a, a, a crucial game and crucial moments in those games. Um so yeah, again, stats don't reveal everything. I think from what he was saying, Bresnan's a, a, a really influential player in that squad. So some brilliant catches at slip yeah. in that game as well. Yeah, that there was apparently he sent a text to Dom Sibley after he had been dropped by England, and obviously Sibley had been down the dumps, and Bresnan texted him just saying like, "Get your head on, we've got a county championship to win." And I guess it's it's that sort of thing. One extra point, of course, is that it's an ongoing scandal that clubs are not fully compensated for developing young players and then being poached by richer clubs. I mean, this is. How this has not been properly addressed by, uh, I was going to say the ECB, but the the CEOs and the county chairman, how there can't be some recognition in a spirit of togetherness and altruism that the small clubs, and we are seeing more and more talent 
being funneled to clubs who can pay greater wages, and that's inevitable in the age of ultra-professionalism and so on and so on. But for these, these clubs not to be in any way compensated for that is, is a shocker. It's an absolute shocker. And you, you have a scenario where someone like Phil Salt learns his cricket at Sussex. They invest a lot of time and energy into his career, and then he gets to a certain age just as he's bubbling, just as he's boiling there, and then he says, all right, I'm, I'm going to head to Old Trafford. Now, you don't knock the kid for doing it, but how there can't be some kind of parachute payment for for the club that has invested all that time and energy into that player, I just find it an ongoing, bewildering scandal in our game that we don't have this. And we have to address it because this problem is, is going to become more and more pronounced. Well, it's never felt more important. Exactly. I mean, but both exactly. of them beating the Here drum for it a few years ago when he took over at Durham as the, as the chairman. But yeah, <clears throat> he made a good point then. And it's even more pertinent now that especially with... Totally. The test grounds getting a bit more cash from hosting the hundred as well. I mean, these the 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 golf is growing, uh, yeah. And 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 you and you're seeing that more and more clearly. Um, yeah, that's something that needs to be resolved. I mean, a real cynic would say that there are certain people sitting on that board uh, with their own club's vested interests at heart who are not prepared to engage in that kind of conversation because it doesn't benefit them and it doesn't benefit the model going forward. I'm not that cynic. But there are, there are certain cynics out there saying that. Ben, Ollie Pope scored millions at the Oval. Uh, he scored 274. Probably the most inevitable double hundred I've ever seen in a very, very high scoring game. Uh, you enjoyed watching him. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously a, a bit of a fast, a strange way to end the, end the season because uh, Glamorgan made 650 for six declared, which was about 200 under par, I think. Uh, Chris Cook scored a double hundred and then ended the game uh, bowling hoop again swingers uh, as, as Glamorgan's 11th bowler. As um, Michael Hogan, 40-year-old seamer, took the gloves, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but it was still, I mean, I think because of the inevitability of it, it was quite nice to watch Pope's 100, just to watch him sort of toy with an attack uh, like that on a pitch where he knew that he was going to be able to like just do whatever he wanted on basically into, you know, they'd, they'd move the fielder a little bit square and he'd drive it straight and then he'd move it like straight and he'd drive it squarer uh, and he'd, you know, sweep, sweep and dab the spinners and move it all around and just, just basically get like, you, you wouldn't like be like, and it, especially in that last, there weren't a huge amount of people in, so you wouldn't be sort of getting your head lifted up by the applause, or whatever. Um, but he was just basically getting a boundary and over and just ticking along at, at 17. It was just, uh, yeah, it, it was the only thing that surprised me was that he didn't go on to a, a triple hundred, basically. Hamish Rutherford um, got his man. Yeah, his first, first class wicket <laughs> in his 115th. I, I turned up here on the morning of that final day pretty underwhelmed by the prospect of a day's play drifting, undulating out there meaninglessly at the Oval. The boy Gardner was slavering like a little puppy. He could not wait for the prospect of Pope's tilt at a triple hundred. But, but Pope and Hashim Amler... absolutely wetting yourself like, with excitement. Pope, Pope and Hashim Amler just, like, just, just driving a, a, like a sort of a, a limited attack on a, on a very flat Go pitch. Go to be honest. Yeah, but it's, it's, there, there is something it's, nice about that. And it, it was pretty sunny last like, kind of last day of summer sort of thing. Um, so, yeah. And also, I think just as a wider point on Pope's career, obviously, it's it's becoming more and more pronounced, that difference between uh, his record at the Oval and elsewhere. He averaged, He's literally Bradman-esque at the Oval. He averages 99.94 there uh, and averages just under 40 everywhere else. Um, but I do think that, like, not every player is going to average 99.94 at the Oval. So it's not as if that is nothing. I think that uh, he is, uh, he's very, very good at cashing in on 
on flat wickets and that is a very you have a theory, that, that is, that, yeah that is a valuable thing and that there mm. are there are flat wickets outside of south london uh some of them might be there in australia this winter and uh not saying he's going to go out there and score 274 every time but i think that that gives him the tools and also i mean you're right you're absolutely right and it's, you're it's a- absolutely right it, it allows him to sort of groove a technique that's not just worried about how you're not going to get out i think but that does allow him to sort of like think about scoring each time which if you are raised on a on a greener pitch where there's a ball that's going to be on that will have your name on it and all you're trying to do is lessening the chance that the next ball is that ball that does mean that you end up with like a slightly weird amalgamation of a technique that's sort of a lot of moving parts and like answers lots of different questions and stuff rather than just like like almost like what's my how can I best position myself to like hit a boundary or all and then not get out basically yep um, yeah I think that absolutely stands up and you made the point recently as well that in 2017-18 at Perth England got 400 in mm. the first innings but that was about 200 yeah like the Morgan's here yeah yeah um Ricky Clark played his final first class game uh in that run fest uh he finished his career with 22 England appearances, three-time county championship winner, nearly 18,000 runs, over 800 wickets and nearly 600 catches across all formats. Greatest second slip I've ever seen in English cricket, genuinely. Amazing second slip. Mm. Literally buckets <laughs> for hands, as Tim Murta says, I think, which would have made his batting record particularly impressive if that was we, the... We ran a little cartoon, didn't we, in that magazine that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, literal buckets. Um, Phil, what's your moment of the week? Uh, the other end of the scale, uh, shortest championship game, shortest four-day championship game in history. Uh, Essex North Ants uh, done and dusted about an hour into day two. <laughs> um, Thirty wickets fell in the game, uh, twenty of which fell to to Essex, um, and ten of ten of which fell to Sam Cook, who's one of the stars of the summer. Um, he had at the end of day one nine for twenty six across two innings. North Ants and I was there for day one, and they weren't they hadn't given up. Uh, they just they just didn't have any answers. And now the pitch was spicy, sure, but um, this was an eccentric game of cricket to say the least, and one of many games that were done and dusted quite quickly towards the back end of the summer. I don't want to whinge on about pitches, although that's obviously an issue. It was more just the kind of chaos and carnage of an end of season. And from the home team's perspective, it just reinforced their their frustrations, I think, with the season um, as it plays out. Uh, they're used to success. They haven't had any this year. The second division trophy, which there is actually a trophy for. I saw a picture of right. I think. So I was speaking to the press boys there and they were saying, we don't know what to do. Do we make a thing of this or do we just pretend it hasn't happened and all of that? But yeah, Northampton started the season really well. They've got a lot of talent actually there. Vasconcelos is a brilliant player, but he he bummed out both innings. I think they were all out for 80 and 40 or something ridiculous. Oh, yeah, Essex won by an innings and didn't get to 200. Essex got 170, yeah, and won by an innings quite clo- quite easily. And yeah, their second innings, uh, Northampton lasted 18 overs. 18.2 overs, to be fair. So yeah, shortest four-day game in championship history. Hmm. On um on counties not being sure how to celebrate GBS success, did you see uh Middlesex's account tweeting uh, just eight wickets needed to win Division Three, <laughs> which unfortunately <laughs> only got six of because Kent chased down well, like three hundred and seventy. That was that was next on my list. That hashtag Super Kent added to their T Twenty Blast trophy with a Division double, Three yeah. title, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the elusive the double. double. Um, it was an amazing game though. They chased down three hundred and seventy three on the final day. 
Um, and there was a 172-run stand between Ollie Robinson and Tawanda Muyeye, who uh, a lot of people have been very excited about this summer, and this was kind of like his breakthrough knock against a good Middlesex attack. Um, so that, that, that was good fun. Um, we're recording the show on the second morning of the Bob Willis Trophy final. Uh, day one belonged to Warwickshire, who, who rolled Langstra over for 78 before ending the day on 120 for nothing. Um, had a couple of questions, including one from Joel Davison, essentially asking, what's the point of the Bob Willis trophy? Good point. Here's his butch answering that question. Yeah, I mean, it, it's unfortunate. I think that the, the whole reasoning behind this um, was, was, was done with good intentions, you know, for, for last year anyway, for, for COVID year. But when, once, it, once the game was not there to decide who were, were county champions, because I think the counties said, and, and, I, and I kind of back them up on this in, in many ways, that you have a league and the league decides who win it, wins it, not a, not a sort of Sheffield Shield-style final. Once that decision was made, it then sort of becomes, well, OK, well, what are we, what are we doing this for? Um, so, yeah, I mean, the best, the best thing for it, I think, and the best thing because of, because of the, the association with Bob and, and, and all the rest of it would be to, instead of playing the Champion County versus the MCC, you play for the Bob Willis Trophy first v second as a curtain raiser to the, um, to the, to the championship season. Um, however, of course, that is another, another week in the calendar that has been chewed up by something else, you know? Mm. Um, uh, so, you know, do you play it in March and try and do it overseas, et cetera? I don't know. But the, I mean, this is because, because the end of the county championship season was so dramatic last week. Um, you know, Lancashire thinking that they'd won it uh, in that cliffhanger up at, uh, up at Egbeth. Um, and then Warwickshire just, just play, you know, playing the perfect game, really, to beat Somerset on the final day. Um, you know, that felt like that should have been it. But, you know, neither of these two teams, I mean, Warwickshire, for example, and I know this from having been having won a county championship and then had two or three championship matches left in the season afterwards, you kind of think, well, you know, the temptation would be just to, to, you know, go on the, on the, on the smash and kind of not pay much attention to the last game. So it don't matter. But on the other hand, you're thinking we, we are the champions. We want to show people that we are worthy of that tag. And we don't want to, don't want to spoil the season by putting in a terrible performance in a, in a game that, uh, that might not mean a great deal, but still is, is, is a match there to be won. So, Mm. Um, I think there's some prize money on it as well, you know, and that's always quite a nice little thing at the end of the season. So I'm sure both teams are very much up for it. Whether or not the viewing public has any interest is another thing entirely. Joe, you, you have strong thoughts on this. Um, Can't well, sleep I, at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't heard what Butch said, so I'm wary of just repeating him. You can edit me out if so. But yeah, it just struck me, first of all, with that press conference that we both found ourselves in with Will Rhodes, that was good organisation, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We asked we different questions. Sure. Um, where he said a few of the Warwickshire players were grumbling after winning the championship that they had to have another game. Well, look, that's... He, he also said that when they arrived at Lord, they were up for it. But that's not really how you should feel about... I'm just really glad that the game is going the way it has done because if it had been Langshire who won the toss and Skittle Warwickshire on the first day, it would have just been a really unfair kind of dampener to a, a really fantastic season for them. And, and that, that shouldn't be the case. So I... I was kind of up for a sort of trophy final, potentially, if it had been to actually decide the championship. So it, like the Sheffield Shield, where the first two play off. I mean, I'm not wholly convinced by that, but that's got a lot more uh, credence to it than, than this. Or potentially, you, you move this game to the start of next season as, a, as the kind of community shield thing. 
Um, again, I'm not sure it's worth it, but that would make more sense in this game at the end, which doesn't really stand for anything. And apart from obviously it commemorates Bob Willis, but there are dozens of ways that could be done in, I think, a, a more effective and more fitting it's way. It's such a delicious irony as well that it's the Bob Willis Trophy final when Willis was absolutely uncompromising in his belief that 18 counties were simply not fit for purpose <laughs> and the county championship had to be pruned and, uh, and he hated in order cricket. for the future of the game. Hated pointless cricket. And this, yep. and this, to all intents and purposes, is, I'm afraid. I mean, yeah, Warwickshire I, fans, tell me otherwise. If, if you're excited about potentially winning this, then look, I'm... <laughs> High charts, they might have already won this they by the time this goes out. <laughs> but I, I somehow doubt that that, I think they feel that the season has, has basically ended with the championship win on a high and that, that should have been that. Could I just add, I don't disagree with any of that. This game taking place beyond your shoulder is a horror show. Um, it's awkward and a little bit embarrassing for everyone concerned. Um, I'll give it one more year though. In fact, I'll give it a week or two to find out what the, the Brains Trust... Uh, you can put inverted commas, commas around that if you like, are going to come up with regarding next year's carve-up of the season. Now, I think we're going to do something on that possibly next week on the show. Uh, the CEOs of each county are meeting today, Joe, uh, and we shall see by this time next week what they've come up with. Um, I'm not completely discounting the possibility that a kind of s subsidiary tournament um, alongside the championship could be something that could still find its way, wheedle its way in there into the, into the summer as possibly run at the same time as the 100 to give members that Red Bull cricket that they crave and so on and so on. Um, I haven't completely ruled it out, but it's got, it's got, it's on its last legs if it's going to be a repeat of what we've seen here. This obviously doesn't stand up. It's peculiar. It doesn't mean anything. But I can kind of understand why they've kept hold of it rather than bury it after one season. I'm not saying that they will come up with a with a solution that will work. Yeah. But it was I'd good. be interested to hear what they do say. It was good in very different circumstances last year. No, last year it worked really well. When it was the actual final. weird times. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and there is some value in that, um, in having a showpiece game on TV at the death, for sure. Uh, but it's not beyond the will of the ECB and Sky um, who do great things for the game, as we know, to come up with a scenario whereby, say, the, the two fixtures that are relevant at the end of the championship season, as Sky have done traditionally for the last few years, you get cameras to both of those games um, and you show those properly and respect the final well, round of the championship, which didn't really happen absolutely. this year. And you, that, was, that was an awkward dud, I'm afraid. Absolutely. Um, you, you can't have a situation in the future where you have a game as good as Hampshire-Lancashire where... I'm sorry, but you actually couldn't see the stumps on one of the from one of the ends on the stream. Uh, the camera was too low, so the umpire was in the way. Uh, if you're going to have a finish that good, it needs to be in, in, a, in a presentable way. Um, uh, did you say, Ben? Sorry, sixteen thousand were watching it on YouTube at the end. Is that right? Uh, at YouTube, right at the right at the death. Yeah, yeah. So you have this amazing finale climax, and sixteen thousand are watching that. Obviously, there are other places to watch it, other places to follow it. And but you so said that the majority seem to I think so. Yeah, to YouTube, right? Yeah. Um, you see, that's that's a that's a derisory number of people who are following that. All right, they'll be following it in different ways for sure. But if that were if that were on TV, then you'd have a damn sight more people mm. aware of what was taking place. Um, on last week's show, Joe asked listeners to let us know what they thought, um, and we got quite a few emails in, a lot of different suggestions for how people want the first class summer to look like. Um, they were sent to, as one listener described it, our shiny new email address podcast at wisdom dot com. Could I just um, say on this? 
thrilled by the response amazing from, from folks keep it coming we're amazing. very insecure over here keep it coming <laughs> it's done wonders for joe's self-esteem he has actually uh, and that's what you need as a kind of uh, late season pickup absolutely and we do our best to reply to every single email as well so do keep sending them in I'm going to run through a few of the suggestions um, as Phil said we're going to talk about it in more detail on next week's show Alex Rainbow suggested having three divisions of six but not a conference system where the winner of division one is your county championship winner there's two up two down across the divisions and then the Bob Willis trophy is a seeded knockout competition competition featuring the top 16 teams from the county championship so two teams don't take place with a final at Lords. Um, Sam Hare put together something similar to last season, a seeded conference system with the winners of each group and the top placed second team going into two semi-finals before a final to decide the winners. Like uh, Luke Appleton suggested that the Bob Willis Trophy final should take place before the season, similar to Community Shield in English football. So thank you very much for those. Um, it really has been uh, an excellent week in domestic cricket. The Rachel Hayho Flint trophy final was a classic. The Southern Vipers retained their title, winning by three wickets with two balls remaining. Chasing 184, they were 109 for seven, having lost both openers for Ducks before Emily Windsor and Tara Norris put on 78 for the eighth wicket to see them home. Um, ben, you said the other day that the Vipers don't know when they're beat. They finished top of the group's age with six wins from seven. A lot of their wins were very close games. Uh, they beat the Sunrises by one run, Thunder by three wickets. Um, I spoke to Tara Norris earlier, one of the heroes on the day, about the final and also her international career uh, that is set to begin next month with the USA in a World Cup qualification tournament. Um, I read that you got into cricket relatively late. How did you first come across the game? Yeah, so um, I grew up in Spain and, and the US, so I had never heard of cricket. Um, and it wasn't until yeah, Chance to Shine came into my primary school at about eight or nine years old. Um, they came in for some PE lessons, which I really enjoyed. They suggested I join the after-school club, which I did. Um, and then, yeah, they kind of pushed me through um, to my local club. But they said there's a girls' team there. And, and it kind of just went on from there, really. You had a really good season in 2021, came close to winning the 100, um, played a massive part in the Rachel Hayo Flint Trophy final. Um, this is your first year as a contracted professional. Can you give a sense of how much of a game-changer 2021 has been for domestic players not in the England team? Yeah, I think it's almost that stepping stone and actually the the volume that we've had all winter has just been incredible. I've never trained so much. I've never had so many games. Um, this summer is the most cricket I think I've ever played. Um, so it's been brilliant. And I think just to have that exposure as well, you look at the likes of, you know, Charlie Dean, Maya Boucher, um, you know, both domestic players play for Southern Vipers. Um, it just shows how England selectors are now picking players based on form and they're actually looking at domestic games as well. They're not just looking... Um, England players so yeah it's a massive massive confidence boost for the, for the domestic players um, and yeah it shows that they're picking you know real talent players in form so yeah it's fantastic. How different was your winter going into this season to what it would have been like a couple of years ago just to give a sense of like how much more cricket you'd, you'd have been playing? Yeah so I mean I was at uni so I was training quite a bit um, I was on an MCC program which was fantastic at Loughborough University um, but those players who weren't involved in that they were having county training you know, once a month on a Saturday for about two hours, and it, it would just be nets, really. Um, so actually to have, you know, you know, the likes of Charlotte Edwards coaching as well on a weekly basis, um, having purposeful training, the facilities we're at are incredible. Um, and yeah, just that volume, which, you know, we've never been exposed to before, is just, is just incredible. How do you feel that you've improved as a cricketer in that last year or so? Yeah, definitely. And not even, you know, skill-based, I think, Yes, definitely. But just almost just having that exposure and that support and that contact time makes such a difference. You know, before 
I was seeing my Sussex coach once a month, once every three months when I was at uni. Um, so just that contact time and having those regular conversations and training with people at the same level as you and, and higher standards is just makes you much, a much better player. Um, and those training standards just keep on keep on lifting. And then on, on the Vipers, Vipers are two from two in the Rachel Hayo Flint Trophy. Um, what do you think has been most important to your back-to-back successes? Um, I think Charlotte Edwards has a lot to do with that. Um, the environment she creates is just incredible. Um, it's a fantastic learning environment. Um, it's very, very friendly, very encouraging, very supportive. Um, and yeah, the, the environment that, that her and, and Gads have created um, is just is just brilliant. It's a really good atmosphere. Um, and I think we just want to play for each other. We want to play for the Vipers. You know, we celebrate each other's success and, and it's, you know, it's incredible. Um, you've been selected to play for USA, I saw, in an upcoming World Cup qualifying event. How did that come about? Um, that happened to the, the 100, actually. Again, another another really good broadcaster that the 100 and that exposure for players, which I don't think I would have got previously. Um, yeah, I think they just saw sort of in my personal players page, born in US, just as a fun fact, really. Um, and yeah, the head coach got in touch and within the space of about 10 days, um, they said, look, if you can get your passport renewed, uh, we want you to come out and play for us in these, in these competitions. So yeah, I went to the US Embassy a week later, got it all signed off. Um, and yeah, I fly out next week. So I'm Really excited. Um, it'll be a fantastic opportunity. Does that mean that you can, can you still play for England in the future? Yeah, um, I think because it's not a test nation, it doesn't affect any eligibility. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty much a win-win. England ended up beating New Zealand 4-1. New Zealand won the third game. Leah Tahuhu with a fifer there as New Zealand bowled England out of 178. Chase it down with three wickets in hand. England won the last two games with hundreds from Heather Knight and Tammy Beaumont. I thought the Knight 100 in particular and the fiddly run chase was sublime. Um, ben, the fifth game was really encouraging from an England point of view. They, they scored 340-odd. They won by 203 runs. And you saw the benefits of having a longer batting lineup there with Danny Wyatt smashing a 20-ball 43 not out from number seven. Is that is that the balance that you go for going ahead to the World Cup? Yeah, it is. And that's also the, the game plan that England have been aiming for as well. They've kind of made a habit of being bowled out often for under par totals in uh, ODIs and sometimes their bowling is dragging out the hole on occasion. It hasn't. Uh, but I think it's because they've been kind of aiming for something higher, sort of realising that if they're going to challenge Australia, they need to just like almost like be better as a batting lineup, aiming for those uh, really big totals. So I think I think so, yeah. Mm. And um, I guess it's interesting comparing it to the Australia series that we're going to talk about is that the, the scores in this series until the last game were actually just known to be lower than what was going on in Australia-India. Yeah, and also, I mean, in this series, it was especially encouraging just how they accelerated right towards it. I mean, Wyatt was the star act, but there was a lot of them chipped in. Amy Jones chipped in. Sophia Dunkley, who's played all of England's games this summer, just looks absolutely at home in that uh, in that sort of middle order, lower middle order role now so yeah that that is that is really really encouraging and obviously yeah but yeah you, you want you know a ton from one of your top three or top four which they're all very capable of doing and then those those guys to put the finishing touches and that's that's how you win a world cup hopefully mm. yeah and and even with Wyatt at seven there's enough bowling there that England should be fine Brunt, Eccleston, Shrubsoul one more uh Natskiver, Heather Knight should cover the fifth bowling option if required yeah yeah it's it's it's, interesting. it's not really the almost the balance you'd go for if you were sort of like designing an ODI team but that's because t- teams just don't expect to have the luxury of a player mm. like Nat Siver who uh, can be a frontline bowler and and Heather Knight also her bowling is she underrates her own bowler I think you could see I mean she did get two of her three wickets with sort of a, a full toss and a long hop but 
she I think I think she she is good enough to be sort of like a six bowler and it's I think England also they will always you know there can't be a five bowler team because Anya Shrubsole in particular I don't think very 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 rarely bowls her full quota so they need that sixth sometimes seventh bowling option but they also have it I mean you know why as occasionally bowled Dunkley can bowl a little bit of leg spin they they, they have other options as well so mm-hmm. Um, a frustrating series for Lauren Winfield Hill. She got in quite a few times. She got that 100 against England in a warm-up game early in the summer. But it's now five years since she got a half-century in international cricket. So that was a really big missed opportunity to like properly cement her, her spot at the top of the order. I guess she probably still will for the World Cup, but you, you kind of worry that without another big score soon, England will look elsewhere after the World Cup. You'd think so. I mean, she's got four, four scores above 20 in this series and didn't go past 44. And that is kind of the story of... Lauren Winfield Hill's career really in that she's got yeah she's been an ODO cricketer since 2013 and in only one of those years she made a 50 plus score uh, and while for a while that was like you know because she, she, because you know she, she would con- contribute in like the last year she's average sort of like high 20s and that that would be enough to sort of like keep you in and around the squad there wasn't huge amount of people knocking on the door now there's loads of people knocking on the door and there'll be more and more as the years go on I mean I mean we've talked about Alice Capsey a lot but I, I don't think it's out of the question that like pretty soon someone like that could come in and fill that role if she doesn't get uh, a big score or a few big scores soon so yeah it's a huge winter for her yeah uh, and and finally you wanted to to comment on some comments made by Catherine Brunt earlier in the series yeah she uh she well I think it was before the fifth ODI she gave a really so she was rested for she gave a really nice interview on on Sky Cricket where she, she's really kind of seems there's been times where she's been sort of a bit almost like terse and al- almost like the classic sort of grumpy northern fast bowler uh, but she, she seemed really at ease with herself uh sort of trying to jokily sort of put off the retirement talk and all that sort of thing but the, the, the one point she was making is that how the um the ODI series almost felt like a bit of a like a, a slightly low-key end of the summer after the highs of the 100 because of sort of the settings they were playing at and therefore the attendances and that sort of thing and I think there's been for quite a long time actually uh, a sort of self-fulfilling almost like defeatist attitude with women's cricket and attendances in England in that if you play in smaller towns with smaller venues you're going to get smaller crowds and then you're going to feel that you can't justify having a game at a big crowd because you won't be able to get the numbers in but if you play a game in London or in Manchester there are loads more people there who might want to go to one and I think it doesn't have to be every game I think if you if you aim for having like maybe two games a summer at like the test match two of the test match venues and you just absolutely gear loads of marketing around that that could be a real way forward and a a way to ensure that the the hundred isn't just a you know a a, a three-week high for women's cricket and then the rest of the summer it's kind of like something played in in outgrounds and 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 smaller county grounds, but something that like is sustained throughout the whole the whole the whole summer. Yeah, well, it's, it's the thing though. If if you've got people watching women's cricket for the first time at the hundred, there are venues that aren't used for England games, and it's unlikely. You'd hope it happens in in, in in small numbers at least, but it's unlikely that someone who's started going to a few women's hundred games in London are going to go that Darby far outside yeah. outside London to watch them. Uh, the Australia-India ODI series uh, had a thrilling conclusion. Australia's winning streak is finally over, coming to an end after 26 wins in a row. The last two games were brilliant. Australia won the second game off the final ball in controversial circumstances before India won the finale by two wickets. Hulan Goswami hitting Sophie Molyneux for four down the ground, the last over to seal a famous victory there. Um, ben, do you want to talk through the controversial end in the second game? 
Because that really was uh, quite hard to follow for a bit. Yes, yeah. So uh, again, involving Goswami, um, who... So earlier in the over, so Australia was sort of, they, they were getting them in twos, basically. They needed 13 to win, I think, at the start of the over. Um, to Nicola Carey and uh, uh, Beth Mooney made a brilliant 100. Uh, but so early in the over, she'd bowled a, a, a beamer to uh, Carey, which hit, hit her on the grill, which is important later on. Uh, and then it comes to the final ball. Uh, Australia need three to win, I think. Uh, and then uh, she bowls again another a high full toss not not beamer but uh around waist high basically which Kerry hits into the leg side it's caught and uh and india think they've won they celebrate wildly uh and then there's a very lengthy no ball check it's it's quite a complicated uh thing to do actually because it's about your waist position in your bat normal batting stance and Kerry, she's playing the shot sort of crouches and she also makes connection with the ball quite a long way in front of her so i think lisa stalaker we got sort of got her ruler out and drew, was drawing lines basically on where like the ball was. Yeah, 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 basically, yeah. Uh, and it, it probably was just about the right call to have it be a no ball. But then you also have the question of like, was it a dangerous uh, high full toss and should Goswami then be taken out of the attack for a second dangerous one? Uh, I think they pointed out on the on the grade cricketer pod that if the India fielder had dropped the ball and then run out the Australia batter they couldn't have done a no ball check because you can only do those after a wicket has fallen. That's the only time an umpire is allowed to do that. Uh, and so India would have won the game if, if the fielder had, had, had known all the so rules. That would have been some incredible, th- <laughs> some amazing foresight to drop the ball and do that. It would have been <laughs> sensational. Uh, but yeah, and, th- and, then, and then also there was debate over, or a bit of confusion over how many runs and who should be on strike because it wasn't, they weren't sure if they'd crossed or if they'd completed the run. But in the end... Uh, Australia needed uh, two to win off the final ball and got that and kept the streak alive, but only for one more game. Mm. And we all lived happily ever after. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the good news there is that Australia are beatable ahead of the World Cup. Um, by the time this comes Wheels out, are off. the test will have begun. The, it's the first test between Australia and India in 15 years. Uh, Rachel Haynes in Harman Precourt will miss the game through injury. The weather forecast is not good. Some other Australia cricket news. The Sheffield Shield game between Queensland and Tasmania was called off after Tasmania decided to fly home after four COVID-19 cases were detected in the state of Queensland, which I guess is not great news for the winter ahead. Before we go on, we've been recording the podcast over the last few weeks, occasionally from Sixes Cricket Club. If you haven't heard about Sixes, Sixes Cricket Club is the new cricket-themed social entertainment venue with restaurant, bar and cricket nets. All Wisdom podcast listeners can receive 10% off their food and drink by quoting Wisdom 10 on their booking notes. Joe, what's your moment of the week? Um, so mine came from the IPL, which I have to admit, I haven't been watching as religiously as I was when it was uh, originally scheduled, when there wasn't much else going on in life. Uh, but I did catch Jason Roy's first IPL game for three years, uh, and he batted beautifully, scored 60 or 42. Um, he was essentially picked ahead of David Warner, who wasn't even invited to the ground because of restrictions about how many players you could have from your squad there. So he watched it from his hotel room, whilst uh, Roy smashed 60 off 40, um, and... Look really good and it just struck me I mean I was looking at his numbers during that innings of, of how he's played in T20 cricket for England this year and his record's good but my sense and others might disagree is that his star is kind of on the wane a little bit and that there was the Roy and Bairstow combination Bairstow seems to have kind of been elevated to another level and, and if there was a player who was vulnerable in England's batting unit to someone else it, it might have be Roy or more likely Milan but but actually just watching him play just 40 balls 
you just remember what what a brilliant ball striker he was. And this wasn't the, the greatest spin attack, which is often his downfall. But you know, there was some Chris Morrison and the Fizz were were bowling, so it was it was a, a decent attack to score runs against. And also just showed that he should probably have got to go a bit sooner for a Sunrisers side who have been woeful so far. Uh, and no doubt he'll play the rest of the tournament now and, and, and puts him in good shape. So puts him in good shape uh, playing at the venues that he's going to be playing for England in the World Cup. Uh, and, and he's looking good. And I think that's that's excellent news for, for England. Um, Meanwhile, still... our uh, cover star can't buy a run. <laughs> well, you know. I'm being facetious. He got, he got 25 in the first game. I thought Kevin Peterson was very harsh on, on commentary when he said three failures in a row. He's like, no, it's not true. He battled all right in the first game. Um Simon Walsh asks, what are the panel's thoughts on the form of Owen Morgan and should it be of concern before the T20 World Cup? Apart from a score of 41 in the 100, his next best score is 27 in his last T- 10 T20 games he's played. And at the time of writing, he's yet to get to double figures in the second half of the IPL. With Livingston now a dead cert to feature for England and if Stokes was available, would Morgan's place in the World Cup team as a batsman be under threat? This is not counting, of course, Morgan's leadership qualities. But will it be time for him to move on after the T20 World Cup? It actually extends further than that. His form in the first half of the IPL was poor and his England T20I record in 2021 is poor from a reasonable sample size. Again, Ben, I'll go to you. What do you think? Yeah, well, in answer to the questions, uh, what do I think of his form? It's poor. And should it be a concern to England? Yes. Uh yeah, and I think if you can kind of pinpoint the moment that the form, especially for England, switches in when Bairstow moved down to number four because they obviously have got to fit all those batsmen into the top four somehow and then Morgan moved down to five and six and he's not quite nailed that role of finisher but also, you know, he's of an age where you might expect to see a decline at some point and in, in a format like T20 cricket where, you know, your eye is so important and being able to score from ball one is so important, those small sort of five percenters can make quite a big difference uh i think he will uh, well he obviously will keep his place for the t20 world cup i think there's a decent argument that he'll sort of o- o- almost push himself down the batting order like as far as he can in a way like uh, he might well like livingston will be england's number five morgan's number six and there might be times when if there's four balls left to bat he'll let curran go in ahead of him or moeen and he'll go down to number seven i don't think he'll have an issue with that he has said in the past that uh if his form were to become an issue he would have no issue with dropping himself and I guess if, if his main strength as a captain is sort of this sort of vibe manager who uh, who is able to sort of cultivate this uh, this uh, aura of fearlessness around the team, maybe he can do that from 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 off the field. I don't know, but yeah, I, th- I think it'll be it'd be very very interesting to watch how he gets on over the next uh, uh, the next couple of months. And if he does have a poor World Cup and England uh, don't win it, basically that that could well be a, a sort of a neat time to say goodbye to one of England's greatest ever white ball players I guess one thing to add he, he has always been a very streaky player uh, and when he looks bad he looks really quite bad and it's not that long ago that he was we were saying he was in the form of his life I mean it was only 18 months ago maybe um, so I wouldn't be at all surprised if he if he kind of comes good at the World Cup but it is an interesting question and I don't think it's one that's as relevant for this World Cup because I think he will play and as Ben says he can just kind of get buried down the order of the runs aren't coming but at the end of the tournament, whether England win it or not, Morgan might have a decision to make about whether he warrants a place in this side uh, in the medium term and whether he should stay on. And I think it it wouldn't be a huge surprise if he goes at, at the end of the tournament, almost particularly if England win. I mean, if I, if I was Morgan at that point, I'd think, you know, this what, what's left, it, it can't go any better than at this point. Um, and 
he's not a bloke. I mean, he's going to be fine. He's not going to just play on and play on because he feels like he can't let the game go. That he's he's, and he's also got enough pride, I think, that he wouldn't stick around if he didn't think he was worth his place in the side. So I think this is a is an interesting question that's going to, uh, yeah, really be particularly interesting over the next couple of months. Mm. And, and again, I think I made this point before on the pod. There are so many global white ball tournaments now for the next literally 10 years that there's never going to be like an obvious point to kind of uh, have your revolution and have new guy come in with loads of time before the next tournament. So I, yeah, I, I, I can see that happening. I can see Morgan or other big name captains kind of um, resigning at quite short notice. Um, should we get into our moments of the season? Um, so thanks again for everyone who, who sent in a moments of the season. Um, we've got uh, our own here in the office. Um, Phil, do you want to go first? Were you asking me? Moment of, of my season. season? Yes. Can I have two? Uh, yeah. I'll be brief. I'm sure. Um, yeah, all right. Noted. Um, both both oval-based. I'm very parochial. Uh, the first one was back in whenever it was. July, the first rollout of the 100 here. 7,000 punters in for the Oval Invincibles women against Manchester Originals women. And uh, it was a belter of a game. It was on the BBC. It was on Sky as well. Uh, many tuned in, including a friend of mine, good friend of mine who has never, she's a woman who never showed any interest in the game before. Um, and she was texting me and asking me questions about what was going on. And the fact that it was on the BBC conferred significance and legitimacy straight away you know she's 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 she goes out with a lad who's a, a big sports fan right so sky sports is a part of her life but to have it on the bbc changed changed the outlook straight away um it was a really good game of cricket um the invincibles won it with a couple of balls to spare maddie villiers who is a you know a kind of coming star and a charismatic young cricketer and a good talker she gave a great interview afterwards she kind of won the game with Dane van neerkirk and so it was good kind of um, good mix of legend overseas, up and coming young English player. Everyone looked like they were enjoying it. It was a very unpretentious kind of atmosphere um, here at the Oval. And um, I think I think anybody who was hoping that it was going to fail, hoping that no one was going to turn up and it was going to be a dud, I think they've got their, their for all the legitimate concerns that we've talked about a thousand times and will continue to, and they're legit. Anyone who wanted that day to go wrong, I think their priorities are skewed. They can't really truly care uh, about the English game um, and its it, and its future. This thing needed to go well. And on that evening, it did. And it was a rousing thing to see. Just a word on my mate. Two weeks later, she went to Lords, actually to see London Spirit stink the place out. But she did go to Lords, And she was on the ticket website that night. Um, and, you know... I'm not saying a revolution took place that night, but uh, it was a rousing uh, experience nonetheless. And the other one is simply Bumrah here on the final day, taking a pitch that refused to yield all year, taking that out of the equation with one of the great spells um, with the old ball cleaning up Bairstow and Pope and the rest of it. And on the one hand, kind of encapsulating India's raw brilliance on the other kind of highlighting England's limitations. You know, they went, England went into two games, two London test matches, favourites, 
certainly if not to win, then certainly not to dr- not to lose. Going into the final day, lost them both, and they lost them both on the back of sustained, superb brilliance by individuals. Um, and India, for all that the year ended ended weird, you know they really did. Um, they gave us a lot this summer, and that spell will live on in my head anyway forever. Mm. Um, our first listener moment of the season is quite similar to your first one. So this is from Amber Nichols. I was lucky to be at the Aegeus Bowl on a perfect summer afternoon to see Southern Brave women qualify convincingly for the 100 finals. But it was not a moment on the field of play which sticks with me. I was sat next to the players' dressing room with the men's match in full flow. The women players left the dressing room and walked out the ground around the boundary. As they went, the crowd were drawn away from watching the men and all stood, cheered and applauded the women as they left. A few weeks before, very few of that crowd would have watched the women play live or recognised any of them. Yet here was a sea change in women's cricket, with the players finally getting the praise and recognition they have so long deserved. That, for me, was the moment of the summer. A small example of the importance of this summer to women's cricket here in the UK. My daughter has never been interested in cricket, but we took her to the 100 finals and she loved it. She's just left for university and the first club she has signed up for is cricket and she is really enjoying it. Hopefully this sort of new engagement with the game is now happening up and down the country. Um, that sums it all up. It does, well. and it's a, it echoes a lot of the other letters in terms of tone that we've received in the last week or two. Not everybody is staring into the abyss with this game, and it's important that we remember that, I think. Mm. Um, James Weeks, uh, his moment this season is, appropriately, from this week. Um, my moment was more niche, but equally satisfying. And I didn't know this until he emailed it, this in, actually. Matt Critchley needed exactly 100 runs from the last game of the season to make 1,000 runs for the overall season. And when he was out for 85 in the first innings, all seemed lost until he was promoted to open in their chase of 23 in the fourth innings. 15 not out and 1,000 run summer for a bloke known to bowl filthy leggies. Lovely. Um, I actually didn't know that either. Um, and I included it in this month's Wisdom Cricket Monthly. So thanks, James, <laughs> for the nod on that one. Um, he need, I think he needed like 10 of their last 10 runs as well. So literally the last ball of the season, he got to exactly 1,000 with a two, uh, which, is, which is lovely. Um, Joe, what's your moment of the season? Uh, mine was back in late June at the Aegeus Bowl and uh, Ross Taylor and Kane Williamson knocking off the winning runs to win the first World Test Championship final. It feels like a long, long time ago already. Um, but, you know, we've done it before. It was fitting that it was those two guys that knocked off the runs. It was uh, certainly a nice thing for, for my family who haven't seen New Zealand win too many cricket tournaments or Have even matches over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Do you go and watch a bit of Essex, do you, Phil? <laughs> I'll be brief. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was that was the moment for me, really. Lovely. Here's one from Harry Bryhouse. In August, I visited my dad from the US where I've lived for 36 years. He had tickets to a charity match for Bernardo's at Wormsley on the JP Getty estate. The day was overcast and always seemed about to rain, but maybe 300 people turned up, about 10% white, 15% black, and the vast majority Britons of Pakistani descent, many with connections to Birmingham, where my dad was for a long time the chief education officer and a relentless but subtle champion of multiculturalism. Chris Lewis, captain one side, and the CEO of Bernardo's. Javid Khan, captain the other. To be honest, the cricket was nothing to write home about. Before the teams took the field, Peter Oborn, who was playing for one of the teams, gave a short speech explaining that although a good number of the players weren't confident that they would ever be able to get up again, both teams would take the knee before the game because racism has no place in cricket or in the world. I live in the country which brought taking the knee to the world, but in which the simple and fussy way that Oborn spoke the truth would be impossible in any setting. That is a great, great letter. Mm. Who was the chap again? 
uh, Harry, Harry, Harry Bryhouse. Thank you for that. Harry, that's brilliant. It's lovely to hear. Um, a couple more. David Shervington said, I'm ah. a, this, is, this is the one that you shared on Twitter. Um, Shervo. <laughs> I'm a very, very fresh cricket fan converted in a moment of radiant clarity a few years ago while painting the garage door and listening on the radio to Alistair Cook in his final test. Since then, I've been to see everything from county championship and one-day cup matches to an ODI and a couple of hundred matches and have always come away smiling. But my moment of the summer... First day, fourth test at the Oval at the age of 35, having avoided the sport for most of my life, my first ever live test match. A beautiful day of ebb, flow and many wickets. And the exact moment I'll be thinking about all winter, Brummer running into Burns in bright sunshine at the start of the England innings that afternoon. The sound of the ominous Barrett army, drums booming across the ground and mixing with the balmy army trumpet a few feet away to our left playing Jerusalem. I'm very grateful to have found cricket. George O'Brien says... My moment of the summer is simply reading Felix White's book, It's Always Summer, somewhere on a lake in Canada and trying to explain while I was crying with laughter and sadness about cricket, indie music and dealing with grief. <laughs> um, ben, what's yours? So uh, mine is from something, but also back in July that feels, uh, feels absolutely ages ago, but uh, the uh, Ben's Babes ODI series win against uh, Pakistan when see, it looks at that point like the the summer might sort of uh, all kind of collapse in on itself when that that notification comes through that England have uh, uh, have had to replace their entire squad because of a COVID outbreak. And then they put together this sort of haphazard slapdash sort of ragtag <laughs> bunch of nobodies. Uh, but England is so, but England is so strong white ball cricket that it would never be that way. Uh, uh, and they ended up sort of, well, cru- cruising the first two games. And then the third game was a, was a classic. Uh, and my actual moment is the, the hundred for, for James Vince, which just felt like, uh, you know, he, he might not play, much more for him, might not play again for England, but it felt like he deserved that moment for, you know, for all his promise, for everything he's done in county cricket, you know, for just for, for how good he looks sometimes. Just, and that was just a wonderful, he'll always be able to say, um, you know, James Vince, England centurion. And it was just a, like a very like sort of heady, strange sort of few days that ODI series. And that was a, a wonderful moment to cap off. And in front of a, a crowd who was sort of cheering everything on and absolutely loving it up in Edgebaston as well. So that was just a, uh, a, a a great weird series win and a, and a wonderful moment for Vince. Kind That's of quite, one, quietly, Vince has actually had an impressive summer, hasn't he? Really, when you met that that knock, he's obviously captain Southern Braves to win the hundred. He took uh, surprisingly a Hampshire side, which aren't that strong in T Twenty cricket, to finals day, uh, and he and he got some a decent championship runs as well. I think it's actually been a, a really good year that slightly slipped under the radar. They nearly won the championship. We probably yeah. should have spoke longer about them earlier on, but if they beat if they if they beat Lancashire, they would have won it. Yeah. He, he um, played yeah. a brilliant innings in that game because mm. no, no, it was a low scoring game, no one made above 50 and he sort of strummed it. He made a gorgeous 69 uh, alongside Liam Dawson who added 40 and, and at that point like Hampshire would uh, Bat Lancashire out the game, the and then it was to be. But, uh, mm. It was <laughs> exactly. It was. It was. It was. James <laughs> Vince. You, you, using that hundred is a great. Yeah. It's perfect. Vincean fair, isn't it? That in some ways the real poets out there. I'm looking at John Hotton and the rest. They kind of don't want him to play for England anymore because it's just such a perfect <laughs> way to finish with a with an elusive hundred out there in a game that he shouldn't have even been playing in. 
That's perfectly Vincian. Mm. Um, Angus Carnegie Brown's moment this summer, I think, is from the day of your wedding. But it, what, his moment this summer is not your not wedding. Not actually Phil's wedding. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been waiting for someone to write about this. <laughs> Apparently not Phil's moment either. So, so. <laughs> Having watched a relatively indifferent but still test cricket day on the Friday, we returned on the Saturday at Trembridge to watch England's inevitable collapse. As everyone knows, Joe Root scored the most incredible impish hundred and not far off a runner ball to put England past respectable and into competitive territory. As we assessed the majesty of what we had seen and discussed what the next day might bring, we were buoyed by the sight of Ravi Chandra and Ashwin doing laps around the boundary and the reminder of the fact that this giant of the game was not on the side. In many ways, it was a snapshot of the summer. Utterly crazy, enthralling, everything that Test cricket is. And finally, Daniel Gibson's is highlight of my cricket year is watching my son complete his first season at Stockbridge under nines, especially seeing him take his first ever wicket, a lovely caught and bold. The ECB doesn't always get things right, but the All-Stars cricket programme has been doing great things for kids in getting them into cricket and seeing the increase in numbers year on year at the club has been fantastic. Yeah, um, and I think that's that's praise and mm. fair praise as well. It's not just that, but the Dynamo's schemes as well have been bedded down this summer more than ever before obviously you know with covid issues in previous summers so so yeah look in amongst um the the brick bats and the vitriol and the bile that's 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 been lugged their way of late much of which is probably deserved um in this (coughs) excuse me in this instance more people are playing cricket than they have been in a number of years and that's a fact that Mm. is a fact absolutely um and my moment of summer is uh haseba meets 50 um, after everything he's gone through in the last four years, but also that first ball at Lords, I think for him to get that moment um, in a home test match, four five years almost since his test debut, I thought was very very special. Um, Good shout. Um, and just to reiterate what we said earlier, we're genuinely very thankful for the considerable time so many of you clearly took to send in your emails over the past weeks and very kind words about the show um if you want to send in anything longer than a tweet do get in touch at podcast at wisdom.com we do do our best to get back to every single email Um, that's all we've got time for today cheers ben cheers joe cheers phil this has been the wisdom cricket weekly podcast if you enjoyed the show tell your friends and we'll be back next week Podcast Network.